Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. Parliament is back, but with more of a whimper than a bang. The King's speech on Tuesday meant a day of dashing uniforms and galloping horses, but was there really anything of substance behind the pomp and ceremony? We'll break down the legislative agenda on offer from Rishi Sunak. The Home Secretary is in the news. Well, when isn't she? And this time it's due to a disagreement with the country's top police officer over whether or not to allow pro-Palestinian demonstrations to take place and a controversial piece in the Times that may or may not have been signed off by number 10, or partially signed off. We'll explain what's going on and look at what happens next. And the COVID inquiry is in the news. Again, we'll catch up on this week's evidence sessions. Alex Thomas, who heads our civil service work, is here. Hi, Alex. Hello, Hannah. And I'm joined by Kath Haddon. Hi, Kath. Hi, Hannah. And I'm delighted that we're joined this week for her IFG podcast debut by Noah Hoffman, political correspondent at The Sun. Hi, Noah. Thank you for having me. And I think we have congratulations in order because you've just been promoted to your new job. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. I've moved up on the big lobby ladder. So very delighted by that. Thank you. Very quiet year for you to be covering the politics. Indeed. (laughs) Okay, let's start with the King's speech. Noah, it's a pretty bizarre spectacle, isn't it? Yes, particularly as someone who grew up in Australia, where all these like weird old people wearing robes is not something we see in our parliament often, if ever. It's very fun to watch from the sort of pomp and pageantry perspective. But personally, I'm far more interested in what comes out of the king's mouth than all the fun traditions that happened before it. And But I think I'm a bit of an outlier in the sun in that respect, because they do very much love all the ceremonial bits, whereas I'm like, right, come on, let's get to the speech now. Well, you're in the right place at the IFG, because we're also much more interested in the speech and what it had to tell us about what the government wants to be saying to voters by the time of the next election. What did you deduce? I deduced that, well, out of how we described it out of the sun was a bit of a damp squib. There was nothing much in there. In the past few decades, this King's speech had the least bills announced in it for a long time. There were only 23. I believe five of them were carryovers. There was nothing really to excite the public in any profound kind of way. There was a bit of red meat for the Tory right in terms of environmental policies. So we saw this bill about allowing North Sea oil and gas companies to bid for drilling licenses. There was a smoking ban, which is a bit of a radical, controversial policy. But in terms of big set-piece legislation, that's going to make a major difference to people's lives amid the cost-of-living crisis. It was quite lacking. Kath, what stood out for you? It is the last parliamentary session before an election. I think if you go back to 2014, it was similarly lighter. The government were saying that there would be obviously more bills. The king always says, my government will introduce more bills as required or or whatever the wording is. There were a a few things that people were looking for. There was the nutrient neutrality way back in the summer, talk of abolishing those to get more house building. And I think that fell from from the speech. So it was a kind of workaday king speech of the government continuing some things, but those controversial issues where Sunak might have wanted to take on parts of his party or parts of the, the policy issues or take on the opposition or whatever, didn't really see a lot of that. So Everyone can read into it whatever they like, but I think it seems pretty standard uh, Sunak fare of a workaday approach to getting a King's speech through and then getting on with the rest of it. Alex, as Noah said, there weren't many 
bills in the King's speech in comparison to some previous ones we've seen. Do you think this has any bearing on when the election might be? Or is it just the government being realistic about what they can get through, even if they have another year ahead of them? I think everyone's being very unfair. The Pedicabs London bill is the game changer <laughs> that's, going to, that's going, to, going to revive the government's fortunes. Does it, does it have any bearing on the, on the election? Absolutely none, I think. It's, it's, it is tempting, obviously, to read into how much legislation there is there. Or, or, or there isn't, and clearly it it, the, it affects the political context. But if if an election is called earlier than we're now expecting, the legislation in the King's Speech will just be be dropped. There is enough there to fill Parliament just about for the course of the next year. I, I think one of the things to remember is that legislation normally you can whack it through Parliament very quickly, but normally takes six to nine to twelve months to get through the House of Commons and the House of Lords uh, anyway. So even even if the government gets going quickly on quite a lot of these bills, there are a number of them that might get quite close to the line for a general election in October, November, December next year. So I don't think we can we can we can read much into it, to be honest. And now, what was the reaction among Conservative MPs? Are they were they excited by this King's speech? Uh, no one was popping champagne bottles open. It wasn't the cause of the sort of anger that we're seeing at the moment around. Suella Braverman's comments about the Met Police. So there was no fierce backlash, but equally there was no massive waves of excitement. There wasn't this sort of feeling of rejuvenation that it's okay, there's still time to turn the polls around. There was no dramas, which for the Tory party at the moment is a (laughs) major win. Yeah, so I think there was an air of indifference. There was also some ministers actually saying that it just didn't go far enough. And it, if anything, it was a bit disappointing. He got away with it fine. There were no major dramas off the back of it. And Alex, potentially, that's what we should have expected. And actually, the autumn statement, is, which is coming up, I believe, on the 22nd of November, is a more significant moment for us to be looking out for. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Just to just just on the on the King's speech, looking at flicking through the legislation that's that's there, I agree with what Noah said. It's quite it's quite Sunakian actually. There are some technical things regulating autonomous vehicles and the legislation that would bring in the the smoking ban that Sunak announced at the party conference, and then some renters' reform and so on. So for all that I was joking about the pedicab stuff, there there is a Sunakian flavour to it, but that is quite technocratic. So looking at the regulation of of tech and, and and other things, so there's a there's a there's a theme to it, but it's 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 not a it's not a deeply political one. Uh, I think you're right. Far more consequence will be put on the 22nd of November and the autumn statement. That's when Conservative MPs will be thinking about you know, to to cut tax or not to cut tax. What the overall state of the economy is, what the public finances are, and I think that will really fire the starting gun for debates that will frame the next six twelve months in the run up to the election. Well, let's switch our attention now from the drama inside Parliament to the tensions outside. Saturday is Armistice Day, which is also the day of a planned pro-Palestinian demonstration. And that has placed the Metropolitan Police Commissioner and the Home Secretary in the spotlight. And I should say that Mark Rowley, the Metropolitan Police Commissioner, is coming to talk to us at the IFG next week in an event that was rescheduled from last week. I'm sorry for all those, including us, who were disappointed not to hear from him this week. Suella Braverman seems determined to stay in the spotlight with the article that she published in The Times on Thursday. Noah, just talk us through the developments we've seen since that article dropped. So when this article first 
came out the question on everyone's uh, mind and particularly within the parliamentary lobby was did number 10 sign off on the article it was very controversial she made some very big calls that number 10 we imagined would have wanted to stay clear from from the home office team we had briefings that the article was signed off number 10 went quiet for a bit as they usually do when they're still trying to figure out what the hell is going on and then at 11 30 at our lobby briefing with Rishi Sunak's spokesperson it was confirmed that the PM saw the original op-ed requests for changes were made and those changes weren't made and weren't made in their entirety and from there, we saw a cabinet meltdown. Journalists have had briefings from very senior ministers, as well as from backbenchers, either vehemently opposed to the Home Secretary and her tendency to come out with these very controversial remarks, and others saying, look, she's actually telling it how it is. This is what my constituents believe. This is what the silent majority has believed. And it all comes back to this split between the right and the sort of one nation side of the Tory party that's never managed since the end days of Boris Johnson came about to find some sort of way of unifying and working together as a broad church. And there's always been these tensions bubbling up and down. And we saw that with the downfall of Boris Johnson and the subsequent leadership elections. But now it's just manifesting again this time around Suella Braverman. So I expect that we will get some development on where Rishi Sunak's head is with regards to the Home Secretary in the next few days. He could wait until after the weekend's pro-Palestine marches to see how chaotic, or if they are chaotic at all, and tailor his response to Suella Braverman around them. He could also wait until the Supreme Court reveals its judgment on the Rwanda deportation scheme next Wednesday. Suella's really tied herself to that scheme, and that could be a way to either justify keeping her on or letting her go. So I think next week is definitely going to be very interesting. And Alex, Braverman's allies have been drawing a distinction between opinion and policy saying that she didn't break the ministerial code, which says that you have to clear articles with number 10, because the article, although it wasn't fully sanctioned by number 10, only expressed her opinions. Does that work as a defence from your point of view? Yeah, I think there's been some pinhead dancing over the last 48 hours on, on, on these things. There is a legitimate question here about the ministerial code. It requires, I think there are two parts of it that are operative in this context. The first is a requirement to clear media appearances and, and, and so on with the number 10 press office, which perhaps there was an attempt to do so, but it does seem that it wasn't fully cleared and, and, and fully sanctioned. And the second is about collective responsibility and whether Braverman is departing from a collectively agreed position. The policy point is more relevant for the for the latter there, and it may be that she can just about claim that she's departing in tone, but not in in substance. My personal view, looking at it, as we know, judgments about the ministerial code are for the prime minister, not for not for the likes of us. Um, but my personal view is that she probably did breach the code around the media uh, appearances, but that it's a pretty minor breach. It's the sort of thing that you might then get a message from number 10 or the cabinet office ticking you off and asking for uh, recognition of a mistake and, a, and an apology, but not a, not a hugely big deal. I think far, far more important is the coherence of the cabinet and the government, Sunak's political strength uh, and his calculations around uh, whether he has the authority to impose discipline on, on the Home Secretary. Secretary and the rest of the cabinet. And then the questions of substance 
about the operational independence of the police and whether the Prime Minister thinks the Home Secretary has gone so far in breaching a pretty bright line in in the British Constitution for overstepping the mark in trying to direct the police in in what they do and then and then having that row in public as well as in in private. So I think those matters of substance are more important in this case than the, the niceties of the ministerial code. Kath. Alex lists there very helpfully all the various different sort of constitutional potential uh, practical issues that this raises. But it it seems that this isn't inadvertent on the part of the Home Secretary. It it seems more like a strategy. Yeah, Suella Bravman does look like a minister who is pushing the Prime Minister to sack her. And there seems to be a lot of sort of political manoeuvring around all of this. We frequently see her popping up pushing at government policy, pushing at the language used around government policy. Uh, There is clearly something to this. It's not just she does these things accidentally. And from Sunak, this is what we're used to with him. I talked about him slightly workaday approach to the King's speech. Similarly, we have seen on issues around the future of his ministers, he takes his time and goes away and thinks about these things rather than, as other prime ministers might have done, react very swiftly and make a decision very swiftly and get to where you need to get. We're still in in the dark on that front. He probably has been thinking. All the signs suggest that he has been confronting the question of whether or not he needs to ask for her resignation. And the fact that he hasn't thus far could indicate that he's not going to, at least not before this weekend and the marches. And the other big moment we now know is coming is that the Supreme Court is going to rule on the Rwanda migrant policy next Wednesday. And this has long been an issue for the government. And whether or not they rule on how they rule could have a big impact on Suella Bravman's decision whether or not to stay, whether or not she decides to to resign on her own count and say that the UK needs to leave the European Court of Human Rights or whether or not she decides to stick it out and what she says around that. So it might be that Sunak has decided that he ought to wait for those things to happen. It's the age old thing of like, is it better to have her inside the tent or outside the tent in terms of his own premiership and his own political position? He'll be thinking about the views of different people in the party. As Noah was saying earlier on, lots of different views of those who support her and those who are quite enraged by the language that that she's been using. It definitely seems like it's been more of a decision this time than any of the previous occasions when the Home Secretary has been in the headlines, but they are coming thicker and faster. So it is now calling into question Sunak's own weakness or strength as to whether or not he can sack or or feels like he can. And you feel like at some point it's going to come to a head. So then we will look back on all of these moments as should Sunak have moved sooner to save himself whatever comes down the line. Just on that coming to a head point, it does feel like this is an unsustainable situation and has done for a few days. I think earlier in the week, I thought it was the Met Commissioner who was more vulnerable. Um, Now it feels like it's the Home Secretary. It might shift back again. But I don't see how this how this kind of war of words, implicit and explicit, can can carry on. It just feels very unstable to me. No, how much of this is cutting through to the grassroots? What do you think Conservative voters are making of these rows in Westminster? I think that the Conservative grassroots similarly divided along these ideological lines within the Tory party as their MPs are. I think quite large numbers are sympathetic to the Home Secretary, because a lot of people who are Tory members have very strongly held 
conservative views maybe a bit more on the right than the One Nation side. But I think the views of the Tory grassroots with the greatest of respect is less important than the views of the public. And what the public will be seeing right now is a government caught up in infighting, in sort of meltdown and chaos amid a cost of living crisis, amid being 20 points behind in the polls. And again, how sustainable is that? Because yes, Rishi Sunak faces the issue that if he sacks Suella Brothman, her 40 or so really strong allies will have no qualms about making his life more difficult in the Commons when it comes to legislation. But equally, how sustainable is it to have one of the most senior ministers in the cabinet constantly coming out with comments that contradict the messaging that the prime minister wants to get out to the public this close to an election. So the Tory grassroots will have their views, but I think far more importantly, what Rishi Sunak will be weighing up right now is what the wider public are making of the scenes in Westminster today. I also think actually the views of the cabinet are quite important in this one as well. Oftentimes they aren't, but First, we saw WhatsApp groups where conservatives were saying, oh, best to criticise behind the scenes. So we don't really know the balance of how many people have been to the whips and complained, how many cabinet ministers have complained to the prime minister. But what we do know is that Times article also made some rather abrasive comments about Northern Ireland, equating the marches in support of Palestine or Palestinian civilians with Northern Ireland marches. And that won't have gone down well there. It's also at a time when the government are trying to, the UK government are trying to restore power sharing in Northern Ireland. You can imagine that the Northern Ireland secretary felt that another part of the ministerial code about not treading on the toes of somebody else's policy domain might have been pushed, if not breached. Yeah, and and it's clear that no minister, up to and including the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt, has been willing to go out on a limb and defended her. They've they've all avoided the question. And I really noticed this, this morning, we're co- recording on Friday, how plaintive Robert Halfen sounded when he did the broadcast round, trying to talk about skills policy. That there was the thing that the government was trying to get attention to, and instead all the attention is on this row. Alex, of course, the next thing to happen is the marches on Saturday. Sunak said he will hold the Met boss accountable over his promises to keep the the public safe and to safeguard remembrance services. What what does that mean? <laughs> that is a that is a very good question, <laughs> uh, and maybe something we're debating quite a lot over the weekend, depending on how things go. As as we know at the IFG, we talk and think about accountability quite a lot. And it's a really important concept, but quite a slippery concept. And I think from from Sunak's point of view, it's usefully ambiguous because, of course, there is a, a perfectly proper way in which the Prime Minister, the Home Secretary and the Mayor of London, by the way, hold the Metropolitan Commissioner accountable for you know, the overall policing of London. It's absolutely right that there's governmental and ministerial and mayoral oversight of the way that the police go about their business in a uh, general sense. Um, But that word accountable also came uh, with an implicit threat, which is that if something goes wrong, it's on you, mate. And uh, that's the that's the uncomfortable part of this, which does then seem to cross over a line into the in, into operational policing. These things aren't aren't straightforward, and uh, and I think Sunet was trying to ride two horses there. And this 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 row with the Home Secretary uh, has exposed uh, some of the differences between them, and I, I don't think that's been been good for him or or good for the government. Clearly, I think there's also 
that there are a couple of other quick quick things it's it's worth just mentioning in this context one is the I, I touched on it earlier but the difference between having discussions in public and having discussions in private uh uh, I think we, we wouldn't be sitting here talking like this if some of the debate that is going on between the government and the Met had been happening in private, and that is potentially perfectly appropriate to to, to be discussed in 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 private. And so that's it's, it's the amping up of, of tension here. I also think it's worth just reflecting on some valid criticisms that ministers are making, reflecting concerns of the public and communities in Britain about how some of these marches have been policed. And again, that seems to me to be a legitimate space for public debate. Have the police been sufficiently on the front foot in policing some of these marches? And then the question, which is a technical legal one, about whether the pro-Palestinian march on Saturday should take place at all. And that is, that's a technocratic decision for the Met Commissioner about whether he thinks it can be carried out safely. And it feels like there are quite a lot of different things, the public, the private, uh, whether the marches should happen at all, how they're policed, all being rolled up into one pretty toxic political row. And and I I just think that those ministers who are talking about de-escalating and calming down the tensions have to be right on all of this stuff. Absolutely. And no pressure on Prime Minister, on the Home Secretary, on the Metropolitan Police Commissioner, but also on Keir Starmer. We had a resignation from the Labour front bench this week. How are Keir Starmer's problems playing out over the situation in the Middle East? I think that a lot of the discourse around pressure that Keir Starmer is under is quite overblown. If you look at the polls, there's been no movement in terms of support for Labour since the conflict has broken out. And if anything, they've actually had a bit of a bump in some of the most recent polling. Keir Starmer's personal approval ratings have gone down, but we're not, we can't be 100% certain whether or not that's directly attributable to how he's his policy on the conflict. There's obviously splits within Labour and understandably a lot of Muslim MPs, Muslim councillors who have very close emotional connections to the horrific scenes that we're seeing in Gaza have caused deep frustration with Keir Starmer's policy. But overall, in terms of the effects that it's having on the public's widespread view of Labour, I don't think it's super significant. Keir Starmer's taken a a very principled position that has been influenced by speaking to actors on all sides of the conflict, humanitarian organisations, but also intelligence briefings and briefings that FCDO have invited him to and and invited David Lammy to. He's come under so much criticism for being a flip-flopper and lots of that criticism is very well deserved because he has been inconsistent in his position on many issues. But I think he is to really be applauded for sticking to his guns on the conflict in the Middle East and taking taking a very a very reasonable stance that we see the likes of all the big Western leaders across the world taking. So I think some sort of nobody shadow minister who most of the public will have never heard of in their life and probably will never hear of again resigns is honestly not a big deal. But Kath, this is a real touchstone issue for Labour, for much of the Labour Party, isn't it? 
Yeah, and uh, we know that there are other shadow cabinet ministers, at, well, other front benchers who are probably on resignation watch and thinking about their own future. And really, that's a kind of mirror of what we've been talking about with Suella Bravman. The whole point is that you either support the collective decision in opposition, it's more firmly, well, maybe slightly more firmly than even in, in government, really the decision of the leader. But you either support that position or if you want to take a different position, you have to resign. And that is why they are doing so. You can see it as they're doing so to protest Kistama's position, but you can also see it that they're doing so because they feel that they need to speak out more and that they can't do it whilst holding a front bench role. So it might be that we do see more resignations, but I think they are really more about, as Noah was saying, kind of individual people's views, their views of what their constituents care about and feeling like they need to be free and able to express those views, rather than it is some kind of massive revolt against Keir Starmer. Let's end by catching up on the latest at the COVID inquiry. Kath, not quite the same fireworks this week as last. No, we had a few more still very sort of key influential people appearing this week, not least the former cabinet secretary, Mark Sedwell, but also Ben Warner, who was doing a lot of the data work in number 10 and whom uh, Dominic Cummings referenced quite a lot and some other officials as well. So it was still really important stuff. And actually, some of the detail of it got into some areas that we had said the previous week were slightly lacking. They were talking a lot more about the autumn decision making. They spent quite a bit of time with Mark Sedwell just talking about cabinet government anyway. And the question, what is a special advisor, which caused a bit of uproar on Twitter amongst the geeks of like, why do we have to spend so much time on it? But it's clear that it's part of how the how the inquiry is working, that they're trying to make sure that they've got their own version of how decision-making should happen in government, even in a crisis, so that they've got some kind of benchmark against which they can judge what did happen. And I think we were seeing a lot more of that this week. We also saw, obviously, yet more WhatsApps and other communications, including from the current Cabinet Secretary, Simon Case, which led to quite a lot of headlines, well, quite a lot of retweets. And Alex, as Cass says, Mark Sedwell was the big ticket person on Wednesday. How did his approach differ to some of the other officials we've heard from? Yeah, it was interesting to, I, I, I watched some of it. And I think I mean, Mark Sedwell has a, a particular style that actually seemed quite well suited to the inquiry and the questioning. He was confidently expressing himself. But the the thing that I think defanged some of the questioning that could have got quite difficult for him was that quite early on, he acknowledged failings in the system. He acknowledged that there were things that the Cabinet Office and the Centre of Government in particular could have done more effectively. He's obviously someone as a former National Security Advisor and Permanent Secretary at the Home Office who's very familiar with the crisis response architecture of the state. And I suspect he had thought beforehand about his views on lessons to, to be learned. And so while some of the questioning was a was a bit awkward, that sort of early-ish concession on lessons to learn, I think, then helped him defend his reputation to to an extent throughout the the questioning. The, the other thing, and there were yeah, there were embarrassing WhatsApps that that were revealed, but it was also striking that as far as I could see, I may have missed something, but 
the ones that Mark Sedwell was exchanging were with other civil servants, uh, particularly Simon Case, and, and and not with special advisors and not with ministers. So some of the language again wasn't wasn't great to see, but 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 he seemed to have taken a slightly more traditional approach to that internal communication, which allowed him then to say, I'm very sorry to the families. This, this stuff about chickenpox parties, Mark Sedwell claimed it had been misinterpreted, but he made a, an apology to the to the families that got picked up on by the media. It just, it, it allowed him to to, to take a, a more kind of sober approach to it, I think, than than some of the other witnesses. The, the good thing though, I think, as, as Kath was implying, was just say, was we got a bit more into cabinet committees and COBRA and how it actually worked and into the substance of it as well, which I thought was a, a positive development this week in the inquiry. Just to say, Alex, I think Mark said well on the WhatsApp front may have been helped by the fact that none of his own WhatsApps were made available to the inquiry except where they appeared on other people's phones because he'd had a, a national security role. He had been regularly wiping his communication devices. So that may be one reason why we've seen less of his communications come up so far. That's a, a very good and fair point, yes, <laughs> I agree. Noah, do you feel, looking at the inquiry as a whole, that the stories that are emerging about the last government are being damaging for the current government, or do people just see it as a historical exercise? Well, that's a good question. I think when Rishi takes to the stand, we'll get a clearer answer on that. My perspective of the COVID inquiry has been that It's been so important from a transparency perspective. And obviously, we want to learn the lessons. But I think there haven't been any major bombshells that have revealed some crazy bits of information that we weren't really aware of already. I think what we're guessing from the COVID inquiry is that there was chaos at the heart of government. People didn't know what they were doing. There were these bitter splits. The communications were all over the place. Processes were all over the place. And that ultimately had devastating consequences. So it's seeing that in real life being thrown back at our face. And I think that in and of itself is important. I think a lot of the public are a bit tired of COVID. It was quite a traumatic event. And I think in the imagination of the public, quite a lot of people are trying to move on on from it. But with that being said, Rishi Sunak can try all he likes to separate himself and his agenda from the past decade plus of Tory government. But that's generally not how the public are going to see it. This isn't a presidential system. And I think in the view of your average man or woman at the pub, anything that is that comes to light from the past, whether it's the COVID inquiry, whether it's party gate, which I'm, which is linked, whether it's any sort of sleaze within the Tory party, whether Rishi Sunak had anything to do with it or not is going to be attached to his name. So I think as much as, yes, the public are trying to move on from the pandemic, they will, those who are paying attention, I'm sure there'll be quite a lot of them, will associate what comes out of it with the prime minister. Also, Rishi Sunak didn't last autumn distance himself that much from what had gone before. And I do, there's a little uh, niggle in the back of my mind, which is that if he had done more to distinguish his administration from the Johnson government, uh, actually, these revelations might be almost helping him in a way now rather than being damaging. I think he did. His Tory conference speech was very much about separating himself 
from the former leaders who are saying, we're going to do politics differently. You know, I'm firing the starting gun on a new type of politics, a new way of doing things, new types of bills. I think there were quite a few subliminal messages in that Tory party conference speech that were quite a desperate sort of attempt to separate himself from past administrations. I just don't think that message got across and I don't think as hard as he tries, it will work. Yeah, because it was too late. My point was he he hadn't done it a year ago. Yeah, there were, it was interesting. There was briefing last week about how, what a great ship the current number 10 is compared to the number 10 we were hearing about from Boris Johnson's government in terms of the way they treated women, the language being used and so forth. So there obviously are some attempts to try and differentiate, but there's still various characters still connected. We, we heard from Chris Wormold, who is not only permanent secretary of the Department for Health, but also currently acting cabinet secretary for the current cabinet secretary, Simon Case, who is off at the moment due to ill health. But yet again, we saw messages this time from him to Mark Sedwell, where he's criticising Dominic Cummings and the behaviour that was going on then. So a slight different take on the, the messages that he was sending to Dominic Cummings. So that will be another moment. And it is about the current government there, even though it's the cabinet secretary answering questions, that's still very uncomfortable for the prime minister, still something that they have to see about all of it. And I think the other thing to say is, yes, while most of the public probably want to move on for the families, for those bereaved, for people still affected by it, it's still very emotive. And one of the things that has been perhaps not talked about enough is whether or not government has tried to improve its preparedness for pandemics. And it's still a major risk. And the government doesn't have to wait for the end of an inquiry to say, we're taking this seriously, we're learning the lessons, we've been hearing more from the inquiry, it's very useful to us, and these are the steps that we're taking. And for a prime minister whose new slogan is long-term decisions, that would be a good thing to be doing, to be showing how actually you are trying to make sure that you're fixing the problems that the inquiry is revealing, because ultimately it may be an opportunity for sort of reflections and some slight bloodletting and so forth. But the purpose of an inquiry is to learn and to improve things for the future. So if the government was doing that, I think they'd put themselves in a better position to be reacting to what is being what is coming up in the inquiry. But I haven't seen any major signs of them doing so. And Cass, just remind us what does come next in the inquiry. I don't know. I'd have to look that up. <laughs> I'll try that again. Alex, just remind us what comes next in the inquiry. Well, a, a short pause. So we've had this um, intensive phase of evidence from some big characters. They're taking a little bit of time off. I think it's a week or two weeks. And then we will have some other big hitters, particularly the ministers, Matt Hancock, who does appear to be being dumped on quite a lot so far. I think there's plenty to criticise him and the Department of Health and Social Care for, but it does feel like there's a people are sen- sensing weakness and and circling around, uh, circling blame around him. And then we will hear from uh, uh, Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak over the course of the end of November and in- into early December. Thank you, Alex. And that's it for today. Thank you to Alex Thomas, Kath Haddon and Noah Hoffman. Great that you could all be with us. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify and all major platforms. Do subscribe and please do leave us a review. A quick plug too for our new podcast. Why not join all the other listeners who have come over to listen to The Expert Factor, a new joint pod with Paul Johnson of the IFS and Anand Menon of UK Interchanging Europe. It's an expert deep dive into the big issues and questions facing British politics right now do check it out. 
And don't miss a pair of brilliant IFG events which we'll be holding next week. We're going to be exploring what change the public wants to see at the next election with a panel featuring Peter Mandelson and David Willits. And then we hope Mark Rowley, the Met Police Commissioner, will be in on Thursday for that rearranged event. Could be quite a lot to talk about. Have a great weekend, everyone.